Welcome to Citizens Climate Radio. In this show, we highlight people's stories. We celebrate your successes, and together we share strategies for talking about climate change. I'm your host, Peter Santoscano. Welcome to episode 52 of Citizens Climate Radio, a project of Citizens Climate Education. This episode is airing on Friday, September 25th, 2020. Joining us in the art house is musician and composer Jason Davis. Jason curates climatestoriesproject.org. The site hosts videos from people all over the world. They reveal the impacts of climate change in their lives and how they're responding. Jason takes some of these stories and then composes music to accompany them. You will hear a moving and powerful testimony from an Inuit leader in Alaska. Woven around this story is Jason's haunting and beautiful composition. You will also learn how you can share your own climate story on his website. But first, we need to dive into the world of climate adaptation. I look at mitigation and adaptation, so the yin-yang, they're kind of just these opposites but two separate areas under climate change. That's Doug Parsons. He is the host of the widely popular and always informative podcast called America Adapts. Mitigation is really just focusing on carbon emissions. We have to lower our carbon. All this carbon that's going into the atmosphere and heating things up, we got to get that under control. Sometimes people say, oh, if you focus on adaptation, you're not going to focus on mitigation. I don't think that's true at all. It's just it's a different area. It's a different skill set. And we've got to do both. But you definitely got to get the mitigation side done or we simply are not going to be be able to adapt to the warming that's coming ahead. Adaptation really is you think of climate change and the impact, sea level rise, droughts, storm events, disasters. How does society adapt to these impacts and climate change is driving those impacts and making them worse? And this isn't something in the future. We're seeing those things even today. And so we need to adapt today and start adapting in the future. The word resiliency or resilience is more widely used in the USA while adaptation is the standard globally. And I think the confusion, too, with resilience, because it's such a popular word, is I always consider resilience sort of a tactic underneath the strategy of adaptation. Let's say you need to make a community more resilient to climate change. There's all sorts of things that you could do. But let's say you're a coastal community and sea level rises are going to come up five, six, seven feet. You're not going to build a seawall. You're not going to be able to save that city. You're not going to make it more resilient. Adapting to that is maybe managed retreat and leaving that area. And so resilience might be something you do in certain areas, but I don't put it on par with adaptation because adaptation, I think, is an acknowledgement. Things might change, whereas resilience, especially when the government gets involved, I think it gives a public false impression that we can climate-proof everything, and that's simply not true. Doug comes to this adaptation work with a wealth of eclectic experiences behind him. These help him to produce a podcast that gives listeners hope and direction. So my background is in policy and education, and I got a master's degree in ecology from the University of Georgia, but it was really focusing on the policy side. Not so I'm not a scientist, I don't pretend to be, but that taught you how to understand science and communicate science and make policy out of it. I lived overseas for a bit in Australia doing environmental policy and then Back in Florida, started really digging into climate change adaptation at the state level before moving on to the National Park Service in Washington, D.C., where I was part of the Climate Change Response Program. As you can tell, I move around a bit. I was with the Society for Conservation Biology as their policy director. 
at the time, I was thinking about doing a podcast there. I decided to start the podcast just as a way to keep my mind sharp. And I have a pretty nice Rolodex of adaptation professionals. And so I started producing a weekly podcast. And from there, I just said, you know, I'm having a lot of fun with this. If I can somehow find some financial ways to keep doing this as my full-time gig, I want to do it. And I became a nonprofit organization and I'm still figuring out my financial model, but it's been pretty amazing. And I get to connect with podcasts like Citizens Climate Radio. I try to stay really positive. I don't go doom and gloom on my podcast. Adaptation is a more proactive story. Oh, look what these people are doing. Look at the sort of planning that they're doing in this coastal community, and they're getting the public involved. In the climate space, especially on the mitigation side, there's issues of climate trauma, climate grief. I can't relate to it when I'm on the adaptation side. It just seems like a lot of people are just rolling up their sleeves. They're sobered by what's coming ahead, but at the same time, I think they're very excited that they can really make a difference today. I asked Doug to share with us some examples of adaptation. So I went to New York City. There was a partnership with the Forest Service, uh, the New York's Parks Department, and Natural Areas Conservancy. And we were talking about urban forestry and adaptation. I was just blown away by this partnership that they developed. They took me all over the city. I interviewed a bunch of folks. I went into the various parks there, Central Park, and learning how Urban forests are actually a tool to create social resiliency within New York City. And so they had Hurricane Sandy, which really just knocked them back. But in response to that, they really started thinking, how are we going to be more resilient to these sort of storms? And so I was interviewing folks and learning how urban forestry is sort of this this glue that's kind of keeping a lot of things together, how neighborhoods are sort of working together. The notion of social resilience, it's hard to explain really what that is, but how does a community respond? How does it kind of work together? The forest actually is sort of a a platform to kind of create a more resilient New York City. With fires, floods, storms, and other extreme weather events intensifying all over the USA, adaptation has taken center stage for some policymakers storms and disasters are still driving that conversations. And then the adaptation people, the kind of people that I deal with, they come in behind the scenes and sort of, I don't want to say take advantage of it, but sort of say, in response to this storm event, how can we climate proof what we're doing here? Regionally, municipalities experience climate change differently. But Doug suggests we focus on a particular impact of climate change that affects most places in the world at one point or another. I've had a bias towards sea level rise just because I'm from Florida originally and always consider sea level rise the charismatic megafauna of climate change impacts. You can kind of say, what is five feet of sea level rise? And you can see these maps and models. Oh, well, that city's going to be underwater. But heat is overwhelmingly the most immediate threat to people. You hear about these heat waves where, oh, look, 300 people died, 500 people died. In Paris, I think it was 2003, 2004, 15,000 people died. Imagine if there was any other event, a hurricane that went through New Orleans and 15,000 people died. It would just be the biggest news in the world. Heat is going to be the biggest threat to people in the short term. So I had a guest on from the Cato Institute, and he was sort of making a point that Paris, one of the responses to that massive heat wave was to have a lot more homes use air conditioning. And it's like, yes, that's an adaptation response, but that all of a sudden becomes aggravating the mitigation side of climate change, using more energy as we try to adapt. We have a term called maladaptation. You know, it's a bad way to adapt to something. 
But at the end of the day, when people's lives are at stake when it comes to something like heat, you are going to want to take immediate actions like providing more air conditioning and encouraging people to use it in their homes. And so it's going to be a bit of a roller coaster how people respond to heat. And it's probably going to be very energy intensive, at least in the short term. As in every part of climate work, morals and ethics play key roles in weighing various strategies and approaches. Insurance is going to change under climate change. That itself could be such a driver of adaptation. You know, are you going to get in flood insurance if you don't do these things or if you don't move out of the floodplain? You can get the insurance industry to really take this seriously. Then you really start to affect behavior. You hate to use language like force people, but it's like, okay, insurance markets change. We're going to discourage you from buying a home anywhere near the coast. County planners are going to pass rules that discourage it. And you really need some of the bigger macro processes to help people make the right decision. If someone sees a nice, beautiful river and there's property there and they want to build a house next to the river, they're really not thinking, oh, well, there's going to be more one in a thousand year flooding events here. You need a regulatory system that discourages that decision from happening in the first place. The big problem with that is lack of political leadership wanting to make those tough decisions. You are seeing some individual actions, which is great, but it's going to take a collective effort to really respond to climate change and adapt to it properly. Sounds familiar? Just like in reducing and ending greenhouse gas pollution, political will is needed to move leaders to introduce policy that changes large systems. For those of us who have been advocating to put a price on carbon, adding some adaptation work can ground us in our local communities. In fact, Doug suggests that working on climate adaptation can feed directly into our climate mitigation work. I have a naive hope that if we take adaptation more seriously, if we get more of the public thinking, all right, how are we adapting to wildfire? How are we adapting to sea level rise? Their minds will start to change about the broader issue of climate change. And then they're going to be like, well, wait a sec. We are responding to these disasters, responding to these risks. We better not make it any worse than it already is. We're not taking the carbon emission issue seriously enough. And maybe adaptation can be a, a catalyst to take it more seriously. In a moment, Doug is going to weigh in on climate work in this extraordinary time of coronavirus global pandemic. First, I want to give you a chance to hear Doug Parsons in action as he speaks with a climate risk expert. Hear this excerpt from America Adapts, Episode 93, Risky Business, Adapting Insurance Markets to Wildfire and Flood Risks. Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to another exciting episode. I'm Doug Parsons, your host of America Adapts. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Carolyn Kuski, the Executive Director of the Wharton Risk Management and Decision Processes Center at the University of Pennsylvania. We cover a lot of ground, how wildfires drove a California utility into bankruptcy, and what needs to change to prevent this in the future. We also talk about the dysfunctional nature of flood and disaster insurance and why it's so hard to reform. We also dig into how low-income households need better access to disaster insurance. And a favorite of mine, why Florida keeps making crazy and poorly thought-out flood insurance decisions. 
And the word crazy is mine, not Carolyn's. Just want to point that out. We cover a lot of ground in this episode. Really useful information on the bread and butter issues of adaptation policy. I hope you enjoy. Now come join my conversation with Dr. Carolyn Kuski. You know, how do you distribute the cost of wildfires? And that's actually a question across so many natural disasters, right? Who's going to pay for all this damage? There are so many different entities that are contributing to this risk. Wildfire risk depends on where people decide to buy homes. It depends on what local governments do in terms of their zoning and where they allow construction to take place. It depends on the land use policies that the community and the households adopt. You know, are they clearing defensible space? Is the development clustered together? Is it flung out all through the wildland urban interface? Those patterns aren't just about people's preferences. Some of it is. I like to be out in nature. It's beautiful, but it also has to deal with the affordable housing crisis in the state and where people can afford to live, right? So you have some high-risk areas that people are choosing to live in because they're such wonderful amenities and other towns that are out in some of these risky areas because that's where it's affordable and a lot of California cities are less affordable. And then there's the state building codes. How you build a structure also determines whether it's likely to burn or not. You know, there's just so many different facets to managing this risk and how we treat our forests and how we manage them, which is like, you know, decades of forest management. And then on top of it, you have climate as a stressor. And that's not just more drought, more heat, which can kill trees and make them more flammable, but also things like allowing pine beetles to overwinter, which can then stress the forest. So you have so much interconnected. It makes it a very tricky problem. Someone wants someone to pay based on what's happening with climate change. And so that whole idea of being downscaled in this utility company is now paying is maybe a strategy people want to use to say someone is going to pay for all these climate impacts. It'd be at sea level rise, be it flooding, and here's wildfire. And I know there's all sorts of things wrong. Maybe the utility company really is sort of the wrong person to kind of hold liable. But you see what I'm saying? It's like downscaling the climate legal risk. Yeah, and I think there's a desire to try to simplify the problem. And it's just a lot easier if you can point your finger at one entity and come up with one solution. And I think part of the challenge with adaptation more broadly, you've really hit it on the head, is that it permeates all aspects of decision making at all scales. And it's also not something that you can just do and fix, but it's something that has to be ongoing all the time. So who has the ability to actually influence the magnitude of the risk and the authority to do so, and who bears the consequences of the magnitude of that risk. And the fact that those are disconnected a lot creates a lot of incentive problems in the state. There's so many people contributing to the risk, and then the people contributing to the risk, and by people I mean entities and institutions as well, I'm just kind of talking in shorthand, and then the people who are ultimately bearing the cost of the risk are often really different. The people bearing the risk are often really diffuse. If you think about, for example, all the health impacts from the smoke that extended all over the state and beyond the state. And so that makes it a thorny problem to manage. So we're starting to get our hands around that. That was an excerpt from episode 93 of America Adapts, hosted by my guest, Doug Parsons. Before I let Doug go, though, I asked him, what has changed with climate adaptation now that we have been in this coronavirus global pandemic for more than six months? What lessons have we learned that will help us with our own climate work? So early on, it was interesting to see many people, myself included, drawing parallels between our response to COVID-19 and how we are responding 
and will respond to climate change. It was very encouraging early on in the pandemic how everyone was coming together working on our response. There was so much uncertainty on what we should do. The experts were giving us advice on mask wearing and social distancing. And it was actually quite inspiring to see within that first month, people doing their best to socially distance and wear masks and just shut down. At the time, I was having conversations with, with colleagues in the climate space, and we all thought that was pretty encouraging, that you could get people to respond at this scale, society-wide, and then why can't we do that for climate change? And then why can't we do it when we're talking about adapting to the impacts of climate change? So that was actually the really kind of inspiring part of all this, I mean, early on. But I don't think I'm telling anyone things that they don't already know, that nationally it was a pretty uncoordinated response. And so that's why we saw the second wave of infections over the summer. And I think a lot of the enthusiasm about people's willingness to do things waned very quickly, and any notion of how we could apply this to climate change took a back seat. That said, I do a lot of interviews, both with my podcast and on the streaming TV channel that I host on Simpatico Studios, and COVID-19 constantly came up. On each platform, I'm getting to talk to adaptation experts from around the world. What I do when I start each of these interviews is I check in about COVID-19. Basically, what does it mean? How's it been impacting your work and whatever is happening with you personally? And keep in mind, I'm interviewing people from around the world. And so it's really just been a great learning lesson for me to hear how COVID is affecting all these different countries. And the common theme within everyone's response is that everyone was still gung-ho about the work that they're doing in the climate space, and they have adjusted very quickly. They still want to do what they normally do, what they would do before COVID. And I think, obviously, the fact that we can't travel has prevented some of their core work from being done. And not doing that work is going to have real-world consequences, be it field research, or even if it's just connecting with partners at conferences. That kind of work has been put off, what, for six months, maybe even a year? It's also been interesting to see the broader climate movement talk about the coronavirus and climate change. I think there's a lot of rhetoric around, well, if you think this is bad, wait until you see the impacts of climate change. I'm not sure that message resonates with the public very well. I get it. I obviously recognize what a threat climate change is, but people are in denial with the coronavirus in very different ways. And they're dealing with climate change. And so messaging, I think, is all over the map. And not to say that I have the perfect way to message these things. It's more of a learning process and how we do it. And this has been quite an active summer. That's an understatement regarding climate change, be it wildfires, hurricanes, droughts. California seems like the whole state is on fire. So climate change isn't going away. We're seeing the impacts, and this is all happening within a pandemic. And I think a lot of people in the adaptation space are learning a lot. We're talking about movement of people due to climate change. If people have to move in the middle of a pandemic because of climate change impacts, it's actually changing the way I think a lot of adaptation planning is going on out there. Also, politically, it's not a pretty time in the United States. But I do take some comfort that I get to talk to a lot of Europeans and a lot of people on the Asian continent and some of the work that they're doing. And these people are just full steam ahead in the climate work. And I think they're looking to the United States maybe to come out of our self-induced fever around climate change and take a leadership role. I think everyone is watching our election very closely and hoping that a saner approach to climate change will come out of it. So overall, it's been an unusual time. And like many, I would like to travel. I'd like to see my colleagues. I think some of the best planning and work happens when you connect with people in person. And we're certainly missing out on a lot of that. But I'm also very encouraged that so much work is still happening. People are not letting these issues keep them from moving ahead, especially in the adaptation space. They know that you can't take a break from these things. And there are lessons to be learned from the coronavirus. We can all work together if needed. We've seen this happen in our response to the coronavirus. If you're going to solve these issues, it's going to require working collaboratively and across an entire country and across the entire world. 
And I think our own failures around responding to the coronavirus, there are lessons to be learned for our responses to climate change. It is going to take some serious leadership to get us to that next level. And I'm hopeful that we'll get there sooner rather than later. Doug Parsons' podcast is America Adapts. It features well-known climate action figures like Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, Dr. Michael Mand, and Christiana Figueres. To learn more, visit americaadapts.org. That website again is americaadapts.org. What's always interested me about the environment and why the environment is important is not so much the politics and the abstract ideas, but really what's people's personal experience with environmental change. That's Jason Davis. I'm a musician and a composer, and I also lead a project called Climate Stories Project, for which I interview people about climate change impacts in their personal lives. I lead educational workshops with students and community members about climate change storytelling. And I also uh, write and compose music, which takes some of those recorded stories about climate change and puts them in the music. I'm a bass player, double bass player. So I was working on a lot of solo double bass pieces. It's a weird instrument to play by itself, but I really wanted to explore that. We are about to hear one of these music and story pieces. Jason explains how a trip to Alaska gave him the opportunity to see climate change and hear it in new ways. Uh, Shishmaref, Alaska, which is a small Inuit community on, on the west coast of Alaska, kind of ground zero for climate change impacts. Because of rising ocean temperatures, a lot of the sea ice, which used to surround the village, um, has melted. And so that means in the wintertime, when you have these big winter storms coming in off the coast, what used to be blocked by the sea ice or slowed down by the sea ice, uh, these huge waves can now just come up and directly hit the beach. So that's caused a lot of erosion. There's been permafrost melting because the, the ground there is based on permafrost. When the temperature warms up and the ground warms up, uh, you have a lot of houses tipping over and you have some pretty, pretty intense damage. And then you also have sea level rise and, um, and you also have sea ice, which people were using to hunt on, to hunt seals, and has now gotten a lot more unstable. The community members know they have to move at some point in the not distant future. During the time in the village, he taught school children interviewing skills. Then he sent them out into the community to speak with their family members and elders. The last one I did during my visit there was with this elder named John Sinek. So a little bit about our village here back when I was young. We, tr we have always had north wind all the time, and we would have blizzards and cold north winds for a good month. But, but after that, it would be, it, we would have real nice weathers for at least a month or over a month after that, where people can go out and hunt, uh, hunt and, uh, get ice for drinking water. And it would be like that for a long time. And then when people, it, the snow gets so cold and dry that you can hear people walking outside. Um, you could hear their footsteps outside because you can hear the crunch real easy on the snow. Nowadays, 
it doesn't get that hard anymore where you can hear people walking past. The snow doesn't get that hard dry anymore like it used to. When John Sinek began to talk about sound, this really got Jason's attention. After returning home to Massachusetts, Jason began composing music. The sound of people walking through the snow is is different. Um, I have this melody, which is, is part of a traditional drum dance song that I play on the bass in harmonics, which is a very high pitch. It doesn't really sound like the bass, but it's a string instrument technique. You hear John Sinek's words interspersed with this, with this melody. Now we hear an excerpt of Jason Davis performing his original composition for the double bass, mixed in with the recorded voice and words of Inuit elder John Sinek. The piece is called Footsteps in Snow. young. When I was young. We have always had north wind. We have always had north wind all the time. blizzards and we would have blizzards and cold north winds for a good month cold north winds for a good month and it would be like that for a long time And it would be like that for a long time. But after that, but after that, the snow gets so cold. The snow gets so cold that you can hear people walking outside.
At the website climatestoriesproject.org, you will see a full video of John Sinook telling his climate stories. Go to climatestoriesproject.org, select the Climate Stories tab, then click on Alaska Climate Stories. While there, you'll want to see Jason Davis in action as he performs on his double bass. Just click on the Climate Music tab. That website again, climatestoriesproject.org. Jason wants to hear your climate story. He invites you to explore his site, to read other climate stories, and then he would like you to consider contributing your own. The website again is climatestoriesproject.org. And if you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. Well, thank you for joining me on this episode of Citizens Climate Radio. If you like what you hear and you want to support the work we do, please visit citizensclimateeducation.org. Citizens Climate Radio is written and produced by me, Peterson Toscano. Other technical support comes from Ricky Bradley and Brett Cease. Social media assistance from Ashley Hunt Monterano, Flannery Winchester, and Steve Ball. Moral support comes from Madeline Para. All of the music we use on the show is licensed, unless otherwise specified. Please help get the word out and share Citizens Climate Radio with your friends. Visit citizensclimatelobby.org blog to find links to our guest and our Dig Deeper section. Citizens Climate Radio is a project of Citizens Climate Education. <laughs>